Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director of Internal Programs. I wanted to thank you all for joining us today in the Lewis Lehrman Auditorium and remind everyone attending in person to please silence your cell phones. For those watching online, you're welcome to submit questions by emailing speaker at heritage.org. Today's program is being broadcast and recorded. For future reference, it will be on the Heritage website within 24 hours. Uh, now it is my pleasure to introduce the host of today's program. He is the Margaret Thatcher Fellow in the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom here at Heritage Foundation, Robin Simcox. Thank you, Andrew. Jim, I knew I could rely on you. Um, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Heritage. Um, terrific to see you all here for what's going to be a unique and I'm sure fascinating conversation about why people join Islamist extremist movements and why they eventually decide to leave. Uh, this is one of the key issues of our time, and I'm delighted that we have two people better informed than most, one from the UK and one from here in the US, uh, with an opportunity to answer that question. Firstly, we are joined from the UK by Majid Nawaz. Uh, Majid is an author, columnist, broadcaster, and founding chairman of Quilliam, an organization focusing on matters of integration, identity, religious freedom, extremism, and terrorism. Majid's work is informed by years he spent in his youth as a leadership member of the global Islamist group Hizbut Tahir. Having served four years as an Amnesty International adopted prisoner of conscience in Egypt, Majid is now a leading critic of Islamism while remaining a secular liberal Muslim. Majid's autobiographical account of his life story, Radical, has been released in the UK and the US. He is LBC Radio's weekend afternoon radio host, and has provided columns for the London Times, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, among others. Majid holds a BA in Arabic and Law from the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, and an MSc in Political Theory from the London School of Economics. I've known Majid for some years. What I didn't realise until I was looking at his bio online yesterday that he's a keen mixed martial arts fighter as well. So not only great public speaker, eloquent critic of Islamism, you don't want to pick a scrap with him either. Uh, we'll keep things civil as best we can, I think, here at the Heritage Foundation today. But it's a great pleasure to have Majid here. Alongside Ma uh, Majid is Mohammed Khalid. In April 2014, Mohammed was sentenced to five years in prison after he pleaded guilty to a single count of conspiracy to provide material support to terrorists. Age 17 at the time, he was the youngest person ever to be prosecuted for terrorism offences in the US. Today, however... Mohammed actively advocates for a pluralistic society which respects human rights, specifically encountering issues of religious and other forms of extremism. Diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome while imprisoned, 
Mohammed has worked with Quilliam on an autobiographical account of his story in and out of extremism. Mohammed was born in the United Arab Emirates and lived in Pakistan for several years. Currently, he serves as an I3 and a McNair Scholar in Cybersecurity Studies at the University of Maryland. Mohammed, we're really looking forward to hear what you have to say. Thank you for being here. Um, I think we're going to kick off with uh, Magic giving some comments, and, and then we'll turn to uh, Mohammed, and then I'm sure we'll have plenty of time for Q&A. So I'll leave it over to you, Magic. Thank you, Robin. <clears throat> uh, you made me sound even better than... In, in reality there. So th- th- thank you very much. I, I've just got to clarify that uh, I'm, a, uh, I, I'm not really that good at martial arts. Just, just a, just a, and, and that's why nobody is in danger for, for so disastrously misspelling my name. <laughs> it's, it's Nawaz, not Zawaz. Though Zawaz does have a, a bit of a ring to it. So I, I imagine somebody was, uh, was going to get into trouble for that. So please, please don't be too harsh on them. Um, it's, it's a pleasure being here. Thank you all for, for attending. I really... Um, I'm delighted to be here for one reason alone, and it's not because I haven't seen Mr. Simcox for a while, um, <clears throat> though you know we first met 10 years ago. It's actually primarily because of this gentleman here sitting to my left, uh, Mohammed, and I'd like everybody to hear from him. But Robin has asked me to summarize my background story, but what I find really, really important about being here today is that you're going to have a perspective from a former Islamist um, who was born and raised in the United Kingdom and radicalized there, and a perspective from a former Islamist uh, uh, who's from here, from from the United States. Um, and also the generational difference between us. And uh, what I'm keen to try and tease out from the conversation today um, is whether uh, that generational difference leads to any further insights as well. Uh, so Robin has asked me just to summarize for you briefly, which I will do very briefly. I apologize, but if you want more detail, there is an autobiography out called Radical that charts my life story. And it's not, uh, it's not what I intend to go into too much detail here. Uh, but I will say in, in brief that I joined, uh, a global Islamist organization known as Hizb al-Tahrir in the United Kingdom at the age of 16. And then I spent for the next decade, uh, recruiting for this organization uh, first across the United Kingdom, and then eventually uh, I traveled to Pakistan when I was around, uh, I think, maybe 18, 19 years old, roughly, to help found the Pakistani chapter of this organization. Um, <clears throat> I also traveled, traveled to Denmark from, from London and ended up in, in Egypt eventually, where, uh, where I was also recruiting to this organization in the year 2001. Uh, the organization was founded in Jerusalem in 1953, it remains legal across the West, including here in the United States. It is not a designated terrorist organization in any Western liberal democracy. I, I make that point clear uh, because I personally have never been involved in any uh, terrorism in my past. I was involved in what I refer to as Islamism, a revolutionary ideology. Hizb al-Tahrir's purpose from its inception in 1953 was to uh, found a global caliphate. They are responsible for a number of things. One of them is repopularizing the romanticized notion of Muslim theocracy, named by them a caliphate, which ultimately led to what we've seen just play out in, in unfortunately, in Iraq and Syria with ISIS. And uh, at a different time, or perhaps even as a, as a question, I could trace for some of you the, uh, the intellectual lineage from the founder of Hizb al-Tahrir to, to the modern-day movement for uh, the jihadist movement for a caliphate, the modern-day violent jihadist movement. There are some 
uh, very strong connections in that intellectual heritage, ideological heritage that go all the way back to Hizb Tahrir's founding in 1953. So I was in Egypt in the year 2001. I continued recruiting for this organization. Uh, of course, 9-11 happened. The global security climate shifted. Um, I hadn't yet realized just how much it would shift. My house was raided at around uh, 3, 4 a.m. in Alexandria, where I was at the time with my then one-year-old eldest son and my then wife. Uh, I was blindfolded, had my hands tied behind my back, taken to the headquarters of the uh, state security uh, underground in their dungeon, where we were held for four days, and there were hundreds of Egyptians uh, and uh, four Brits. Uh, then they began interrogating people, um, but their definition uh, of interrogation under former President Hosni Mubarak was by electrocution. So they began by torturing uh, numbers in chronological order. Uh, so they would start from number one and go all the way up, <clears throat> and uh, the rest of us would have to listen to their screams as they were tortured, uh, mainly uh, by being electrocuted on the teeth and the genitalia. They were also beaten. Uh, and so, of course, my number, being number 42, I would have to have listened to 41 people go before me. Um, for reasons I still do not fully understand till this day, and it's not because of my British citizenship, because they tortured another British citizen uh, before me, uh, but for reasons I don't fully understand, uh, when my number was called and I had to walk to my uh, interrogator, he gave me a further 12 hours before... He said before he would torture me. And it was in that brief period on the fourth day, <clears throat> while I had this 12-hour extension to tell him the truth, uh, as he as he insisted on, uh, because the only answer I was giving up until that point was my name and my uh, citizenship and my affiliation to Hizb Tahrir in Britain, which I was admitting to in, in, that, in the dungeon. But he gave me 12 hours to explain to him everything I was doing in Egypt. And, and in that window, the uh, British embassy finally ma managed to make contact uh, which they're obliged to do within 48 hours, uh, but the Egyptians weren't responding. It took four days. They finally managed to make contact, and we were then moved from uh, the torture dungeons of the state security and moved into solitary confinement in a prison known as Mazaratora prison. I was held into, in solitary confinement for four months um, in, a, in a bare concrete cell until we were eventually charged. I um, have memorized the charge all these years later, it's still in my head. It's, uh, it's been, I think I was released in 2006. But uh, in 2004, um, two years into us being held, we were eventually convicted. Now, the charge was uh, which means propagating by speech and writing for uh, a non-licensed organization. Hizbut Tahrir is not even prescribed or designated as a terrorist organization in Egypt. So what they charged us with was speech and literature. Uh, when we were eventually convicted, this is why Amnesty International was able to adopt us as prisoners of conscience, because Amnesty has a very strict policy. And that policy is that even if there is a dictatorial regime that makes the mere accusation of violence, they will not come near you for, with the with the prisoner of conscience de uh, designation, uh, because they want that designation to remain above suspicion. And so the reason they were able to adopt us as prisoners of conscience is because uh, that we weren't even accused of, uh, of violence, let alone convicted of it. We were <clears throat> eventually convicted for a thought crime, though the thoughts that we believed in were rather reprehensible. 
So I served my full sentence, which was five years, um, but uh, it was meant to be uh, a three-quarter sentence. Um, I ended up serving three years and nine months, uh, roughly four years before we were released. And then we returned to the UK in 2006. But over the course of that time in prison, I uh, spent those four years in jail studying, debating, reading with the who's who of the Egyptian jihadist and Islamist scene. At the time, I had the assassins of the former president of Egypt in jail with me. I had the uh, leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, Muhammad al, uh, Dr. Muhammad al-Badir, uh, who's currently the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood. He was in jail with me and, and the leadership circle of the Ikhwan, the Muslim Brotherhood, as well as the leaders of Gamal uh, uh, al-Islamiyya, which was Egypt's largest terrorist organization. Um, and uh, their founder was in jail in the same prison, Masra'at Torah. And I spent the next <clears throat> four years debating with these jihadists and Islamists. Some of them had changed their minds. In particular, I remember the assassins of Sadat, uh, who had uh, who had come to regret their role in that killing of the uh, president of Egypt when he made peace with Israel. And uh, <clears throat> those debates and those conversations, uh, I like to say they, they, they turned, who was a very young hot-headed radical at the age of 24. Upon my release at the age of 28, I grew and matured and my understanding developed to a point where I could no longer sustain uh, the deception that is the theocratic Islamist ideology. So upon my release, roughly a year later, in 2007, I announced my departure from Hizb tahrir and in 2008, Robin will remember, uh, we founded Quilliam in the UK as the first Muslim-founded, Muslim-led counter-extremism initiative with a purpose of challenging the Islamist ideology and promoting alternative voices to uh, the Islamist discourse. That's where I'll stop, and uh, I think we'll allow Muhammad to take take over from from here with his story. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Majid, and Muhammad, please. Sure. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. Um, this is actually my first uh, sitting down engagement with Majid Nawaz, so I'm actually very um, honored to be here. Um, I've been working with Quilliam for the past year, and Dr. Mohammed would just want, would like to acknowledge his support throughout this process, uh, as well as, you know, uh, Mr. Harris Rafiq here, who's the um, um, lead to Quilliam in UK. Um, so my story, as you've heard, it's actually, or you may have read about it, I was, uh, as described, the youngest person in the United States to be convicted of terrorism-related charges uh, back in 2014 when I was convicted. Um, as far as my background, I came here when I was uh, about 13 or 14 years old. I had migrated to two different countries, uh, United Arab Emirates, where I was born, as well as Pakistan, uh, where I lived with my uh, parents until we came to the United States uh, after my father sponsored us here. Uh, I think the biggest um, the biggest thing that I remember uh, was a completely process uh, was, a, was a process of disorientation, basically, you know, like not knowing where I was getting into, you know, what the country looked like, and just reconciling this dreamland that I'd imagined, you know, in back in uh, Pakistan and back in United Arab Emirates uh, with the with the environment that I kind of found myself in. Uh, one of the biggest things that my parents kind of focused on throughout my life was education and the meaning of education. So I restricted myself to just education itself, just look forward to making friends in high school and, you know, joining, uh, starting that process um, of, I guess, you know, my, my high school as well as uh, getting a good college education. Um, I had heard vaguely about, you know, the different uh, political ideologies that were abounding, Islamism, I mean, I, I did not know was even a term. Um, I knew about the wars, of course, in Afghanistan and Iraq, and what uh, people, at least in Pakistan, in the uh, journalistic circles, you know, were kind of talking about, and how uh, 
there are some kind of levels, uh, level of accusation, uh, leveled towards the United States for its, uh, role, you know, in these wars. So I kept that in the back of my mind, but I'd not paid any particular attention to it. Uh, that was until I came to the United States. Um, and, uh, like I said, the, you know, the process of disorientation in, in terms of, you know, my, um, failure to begin uh, adjusting to, to the society was actually happened in high school. So this place that I really imagined, you know, would be a perfect place for me to get educated. Um, I could not make any friends. So that was the first thing. I was labeled as a nerd, um, which is fine. But at the same time, when uh, my name, my first name, Mohammed, was actually used, used as a uh, misnomer for someone who's a terrorist by, you know, by just by having that name was something that I could not reconcile. I did not know why people, why, you know, friends from our students in high school would just call me a terrorist just because my name was Mohammed. Um, and this was just, you know, me introducing myself that, you know, this is my, this is who I am. This is the country that I came from. And of course, you know, people also, you know, begin, um, saying that, well, Pakistan is a country that sponsors terrorism. So why are you, you know, like, what's, that's something that people could not, like, uh, kind of, uh, con- that's something that I could not reconcile, like why people were making that connection and making that association with me. Uh, so I kept that in the back of my mind. Um, I did not talk to anyone about these problems. I just internalized it. Uh, I was confused, of course, because uh, coming to the United States was uh, actually an end-all for us. My father had been sponsoring uh, us to come to the United States, and it was like uh, I was really looking forward to being together with my father as one whole family unit. Uh, my siblings were doing relatively well in high school. They were not facing the same kind of issues that I was facing, and I did not even talk to my own family about these uh, kind of uh, taunts and bullying that I became uh, um, that, that I became subjected to from the from the very beginning. Um, instead of uh, talking to people, instead of interacting with people, I turned to the most easiest source that was on the, my fingertips, which is but you know which is what most of us would do in this room if you had a question about it. just go to the internet and search for it. Um, I began to, um, because I was confused about how my name was related to terrorists and why and and what and who these terrorists were and what my role in that may have been. I wanted to search more about it. So my beginning searches uh, on Google led me to watch YouTube videos. So I created a YouTube account and I started watching different videos. One video led to another. Um, I began making connections on YouTube. Uh, and this is, uh, on YouTube is where I actually got connected to, uh, extremists, uh, Islamist extremists, uh, uh, from the, from the very beginning. Um, that, that is where my, um, uh, co-conspirator in my case, Colleen LaRose, was, uh, was, um, was present and she connected me to other, uh, different extremists, other extremists on YouTube and, um, I began to just absorb the material. So, um, again, one YouTube video led to another YouTube video. I would spend most of my time after coming back from school, uh, quiet in school, but online, you know, I would just try to absorb as much material as I could. Uh, I saw different videos, uh, that portrayed the U.S. and, you know, the West in general, uh, in a negative light, you know, by depicting, you know, bombings and wars and, uh, children being killed. And, uh, you know, everything else that, um, that I had vaguely seen in, in, when I was in Pakistan, you know, in, in the media. Um, one of the biggest, uh, and going back to Pakistan, one of the biggest things that I do remember was the image of, uh, you know, the Twin Towers when they were, uh, falling down. And I cannot forget one of the comment from one of the, uh, media commentators was like, well, maybe they had it coming. This is when it began to kind of make sense to me that, well, maybe because what's happening to me is, 
reflective of a wider uh, ideology that I'm not aware of. So I wanted to get to know that ideology. I wanted to talk to the groups. I wanted to talk to people behind that. Uh, so eventually, I was introduced to extremist forums, online extremist forums. Um, uh, these were beginning forums like Ansar um, al-Mujahideen, Dawn of the Ummah, so all these different beginning forums that uh, are very popular these days, but uh, of course a lot of extremists have kind of splintered from that point on. ISIS was still known as Islamic, um, um, ISIS was still known by their uh, Al-Furqan media, uh, and they were still um, um, muted presence within the group, but definitely known as one of the most you know, uh, fearsome and one of the most vigilant groups that were present in extremist circles. So I connected with these extremist groups. I was invited to passport protected forums and uh, began working uh, with uh, other extremists and just communicating at first about my life. So I would just spend uh, the same amount of time that most of us would work, you know, in a week, about 40 hours a week. I would just spend online talking to these people uh, whom I considered my closest friends, not only that, but more than that, as brothers and sisters. Uh, I would confide in them. I would, um, and the more I confided in them, the more separated and secluded I became from my own family. My family could not figure out what was wrong with me. They did not know what was happening because I kept it very well hidden from them. Um, eventually, my activities, my communication online, uh, attracted the attention of the FBI. Um, I did not know how serious it was to get involved, uh, get involved with the FBI, but uh, the agents paid multiple visits uh, uh, to my house. Uh, I was taken to um, different places, and especially their field office, just to have a chat and interview. Um, and uh, those interviews kind of consisted of me explaining about different transcripts that they had and different uh, information about other extremists who were present online. I was asked to identify those people and identify the posts and everything else. Um, again, I was still very much absorbed in the Islamist ideology, so I did not uh, really give the agents complete and accurate information. I thought it was a tug of war that sometimes, you know, it's, it's just something that I, something that I had to kind of, you know, keep it on, on the back of my mind, but also like still, uh, partake in Islamist ideology online because that's where my true, uh, loyalties at least lied. Um, so, uh, eventually, um, I was, FBI did tell me to stop, uh, going to, uh, going online, but I was stubborn. I did not want to listen to them because I still considered them as part of the other in that us versus them world that was beginning to make more sense to me. Um, and I, um, um, I, I just kept on um, going online, kept on, you know, partaking in different communication with extremist media outlets. And eventually I was also a part of translating uh, extremist uh, vi uh, videos um, from different media groups, um, especially Al-Qaeda and As-Sahab. Uh, translating those videos from Urdu to English language so that way those uh, uh, videos could reach a more wider, broader uh, Western English-speaking audience. Um, so eventually at the age of, this was when I was about 15 or 16 years old. Um, it was a very, um, I think, uh, tumultuous um, moment in my life, but at the same time it was also very um it was also very sensible to me personally at that time because this was exactly what made sense and this is exactly what uh, kind of reconciled with my own life. Uh, when I was about 17 years old, uh, a, a month before I was about to uh, get into Johns Hopkins University, I was arrested in my parents' house. I was taken to a juvenile detention center and uh, tried as an adult in the Bureau of Prisons Custody uh, where I served about my uh, five of my uh, uh, five years in, um, in federal uh, federal prison. Uh, after that, I was taken into immigration custody, where after a long and protracted legal fight uh, last year, I was able to get my U.S. citizenship. Uh, and here I am now. Um, 
So it's been about a uh, little over two years since I was uh, um, in ICE custody, in in in, um, in federal custody, civil and criminal, and uh, slowly, you know, reestablishing and reacquainting myself to life, um, um, you know, behind after after I came out from bars. But the main point, right? Like, what kind of led me to make the change? What kind of led me to be before you guys and explain about my journey? Um, believe it or not, it was as simple as seeing people as human beings, right? So a lot of times in high school where I did not want to socialize and interact with people, um, where people just threw accusations and taunts at me and no one wanted to speak to me and I did not want to speak to people. Um, in prison, especially in the juvenile detention center where I was first taken, uh, the juvenile correctional counselors uh, or the correctional officers in the juvenile custody were the ones who kind of pulled me out of my cell and they wanted to just know more about my life. This is something that I had not been exposed to. This is something that hadn't happened to me while I was in high school or, you know, or in, in American society in general. Um, and for people, and of course, you know, they may have been just being a little bit curious about my, about my journey, about what led me to be in, in, in juvenile custody, in federal custody. But at the same time, they wanted to understand what drove me to what I did. You know, they had already found out about my charges and they wanted to kind of, uh, understand me a little bit more. So, because I was not willing to speak, they explained explain about their struggles, they explained about their dreams, about their journeys. And uh, so began a process of humanization, a process, you know, in which I was able to finally relate to these people who might otherwise, you know, in under the umbrella of Islamist ideology, and uh, whom I finally, on the at least in the beginning step, began to see as human beings. Um, and slowly... You know, but surely I began to communicate. I found out uh, right, right before my sentencing that I had Asperger's syndrome. I was also diagnosed with depression and anxiety uh, prior to that. So that kind of helped me know, you know, my place in the world. That kind of helped me know why I was partaking in a lot of actions and a lot of, like, social awkwardness that happens to be a part of my condition. Um, but this slow pl- process of humanization, you know, the slow process of, like, just talking with other people, you know, and just, like, knowing their perspective and them telling me about their lives allowed me to open up, you know, and allowed me to finally uh, talk about my grievances, about my frustrations, about why I felt secluded and isolated in high school. Um, and uh, for the first time in my life, I mean, I had memorized a few chapters of the Quran in Arabic in Pakistan, but I'd never really read the English translation uh, but the, um, the officials, correctional officers, uh, officers in the juvenile facility actually encouraged me to pick up the Quran and read it from front to back. And that's exactly what I did. And that's, that, uh, began, that kind of at least, uh, influenced a, a lot of my, uh, thoughts and a lot of my, uh, spiritualness that still remains a part of me today. Um, and of course I reached out to Colium too at that time, you know, because one of the, one of the things that you are, uh, that you do have in prison is a lot of time to reflect on things. And uh, I was listening to a BBC podcast and that's where I found out about Majid's uh, journey, uh, in and out of extremism. And I just reached out to the organization and, uh, after, um, and we were finally able to connect, you know, after my, uh, sentence was served. Uh, but, um, that's in a nutshell, that's my journey, uh, you know, out and in of extremism. Um, again, the biggest takeaway from it was the humanization aspect. That's something that I denied myself and I denied other people, but hopefully that would resolve while I was in prison. Thank you. Thank you, Mohammed. I, I just want to uh, reflect on some of what we just heard uh, because the last time I saw this gentleman here was in New York, uh, I think a couple of years ago. Uh, he was wearing a tag on his ankle um, and was fighting deportation from this country. 
And so I want to say just how uh, incredibly proud I am, uh, not only with your turnaround, uh, but also uh, with how eloquently you spoke just now and the, the positive example you're now leading. And the reason I say that, and also I want to say how proud of America I am that this country has given you that second chance to rehabilitate. Uh, the reason I say that is 10, 10, 11 years ago, we set Quilliam up in 2008, and the reason we did so was to, for moments like this, where we have uh, the younger version of me is able to come through this mess and come out the other side and say, um, you know what, I don't want to be that anymore. Muhammad wrote us a, a letter, snail mail, handwritten letter from his prison. It reached us in London, and in that letter he explained why he wanted to make contact. And really it's, it's what we live for. When I say at the time of my arrest in Egypt, uh, I said, if you recall, I said my then wife and my eldest son. And part of the problem is that this comes with a lot of struggle and sacrifice and, and, and lives and families are broken. Um, and it's not an easy thing to do. That's now my ex-wife. Um, it's not an easy thing to turn your life around in that way. And then it's even harder to go out into our communities to challenge this ideology. Um, the debate has become a lot more sophisticated than it was 10, 11 years ago. And the part of the problem was any Muslim speaking out in those days was immediately labeled as pro-invasion of Iraq, pro-Guantanamo, pro-Abu Ghraib. It's either or. If we were critical of the jihadists and the Islamists, it means that we were supportive of uh, the torture at Bagram or the torture in Abu Ghraib. And there was no nuance to the debate. So what I've just heard from you is it's, it makes it everything we've been struggling with to, to try and achieve for the last 10 years. When we set William up, it makes it worthwhile. Uh, so thank you for being willing to speak about it. And I just want to acknowledge, of course, um, our U.S. director, Mohammed, who's here, um, who's been working with you uh, to make sure that things go right for you. Um, and I want to make a public commitment to you here now um, on this stage that um, we won't we won't abandon you. We'll make sure uh, that beyond your studies, that there will be uh, a place for you to work with us and to continue working with us and to lead by example so that you can continue perhaps even impacting other people that may find themselves in your position. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, thank you to you both. I, I mean, there's obviously a, an awful lot there to uh, reflect upon from two, I think, pretty searing and, and insightful um, set of comments. Um I guess the, the, I'm, I'm going to open up to you guys very soon because I think there's a lot of questions. But the one I would kick off with, and um, it's it's not a terribly, or maybe it's going, maybe maybe the answer will be more optimistic than I think. But my my question to both of you is: Are things better now than they were when you first started being when you first started getting immersed in this ideology? Do you feel that we're in a better position to challenge it now than we were then? Do you think that we are winning the hearts and minds, war of ideas, um, struggle? Are we or in a better place to fight it now than we were in the 90s as it would have been for you and, and Mohammed, I think, at, this, at the start of the century? I guess are you more optimistic now than you were before? Sure, yeah. Um, I think a lot of the process of our de-radicalization and reintegration actually is a very individualized process, so there's no one-size-fits-all approach, unfortunately. Um, in terms of war in minds and in terms of that battle, um, that's something that if we have not capitalized on, extremists have. A lot of stuff that happened in my life, in my journey, um, 
I never met any of these extremists in person, so there was nothing that happened physically, nothing in terms of my meeting with them. But everything that happened online in terms of the media strategy, in terms of the ideological underpinnings of it, was very was perfect in, in, in a way that kind of made sense about what was happening in my perfect life. So they were able to relate to the grievances that I felt in my life to a larger strategy of you know radicalization and involvement, a deeper involvement in extremism. In terms of our approach, you know, I think there's something that there should be learned from that. Like maybe something that we can, you know, uh, just a level of hope. Sometimes that's all we need to people. Uh, in my case, in my particular case, it was just talking with other people. So maybe if we just begin to like, I mean, I know it sounds grandiose or whatever, but sometimes if you just talk to someone who's going through some things or who may be going through some things, if they're recluse, it makes a difference. I mean, it made a difference in my life so much so that I was able to disavow my previous beliefs that held a very, very strong pull for me. So that process of humanization, I think, is very, very important. Uh, redirection is another part of that too, right? So a lot of like extremist videos that I was watching at that time uh, were not really looked upon by media, uh, well, by um, outlets like, such as YouTube, but now there's a lot more that, that is being done in terms of counter-narratives. We have a lot of more... Um, uh, at least a little bit more responsibility by technological groups or industries to kind of focus more on, you know, counter-messaging and counter-narratives. I think those are very, very important as well. Um, but those are the two takeaways that I have from this. I think <clears throat> things got worse. Um, yes, America hasn't suffered a 9-11, thank God, since those attacks. But uh, in the Middle East, there have been 9-11s on a regular basis in the ISIS takeover of Iraq and Syria um, <clears throat> and the attempted genocide of the Yazidis and the enslavement of their uh, female members of their community uh, all uh, all point to why I'm saying things got worse. Um, back in, in the days when I was in Egypt, uh, it was only a pipe dream for jihadists to ever think that they would take, take power in the way they ended up doing through ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Uh, and the ideology has hardened and the uh, jihadist violent manifestation of it is now more brutal than it ever was. And of course, the internet has helped facilitate that. Uh, luckily, we're, we, we're off the back of that particular um, peak in a problem. And so now we have an opportunity. But we do need to seize that opportunity um, while ISIS is on its back foot because, of course, there are camps there are ISIS former wives with children that they're calling cubs who are in these camps, who are raising ISIS flags. Uh, they're in no man's land. And even the Western fighters from among them aren't being received back in their countries of origin. Uh, ironically, Europe has been very critical of America creating uh, Camp X-Ray at Guantanamo Bay and yet doesn't want to take its own fighters back, leaving them in an effective Guantanamo in no man's land looked after by the Kurdish militia in Syria. And so the, the, there's, a, there's a danger there. There's an opportunity for ISIS or other jihadists to reemerge. We need to look at that very carefully. Uh, Murad also says, seize the opportunity domestically now that ISIS is on the back foot in the US. And of course, we're here. We will continue doing what we do. But I do think there is, there is room for perhaps a, a more formalized uh, rehabilitation and de-radicalization initiative with people like Muhammad and others. Um, and I also think there's room here in the U.S. for a community-based civil society response to radicalization. 
Um, and, and those two areas, I think, again, are, are opportunities that we should be seizing before the next ISIS rears its uh, its ugly head, which which I think inevitably it will do. Okay, thank you. Um, why don't we take a couple of questions at a time, and if you can give name, affiliation, and question in the form of a question rather than a statement, that would be terrific. Um, I have a gentleman here in the second row, and is there a second one? Then we'll go to Jim, four rows back. Uh, hi, I'm Andrew Herod. I'm a writer for, among other various outlets, uh, including the Middle East Forum and also uh, Robert Spencer's Jihad Watch. I've written an article uh, concerning Quilliam at Jihad Watch and noted in particular that uh, various affiliates of Quilliam have in the past denounced Robert Spencer and Pamela Geller and Ibn Warak and Ayan Hirsi Ali as uh, American alt-right leaders, along with denunciations of front-page magazine uh, and as Islam bashers, also Mil- Melanie Phillips has been denounced by Ed Hussein for her zealotry and um, ignorance, uh, and, and even been called an Israel firster by Ed Hussein. Is is, is this uh, appropriate for an organization that wants to counter uh, jihadist ideologies to attack such individuals? I'm sure we'll be able to. Do you want to answer that? No, I'm, I'm, Aeon's a friend of mine. She's a beautiful human being. And as for everybody else you mentioned, I'm not in the business of going after people personally, and it's not really the subject today. I'm not interested in <clears throat> smearing or rubbishing any individual's names. There are disagreements with some people, um, and uh, the, the way forward with those disagreements is to have civil conversation. Thank you for your question. I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the cultural angle. I was interested when Robin introduced you. I'm Jim Hansen from Security Studies Group. Uh, Robin introduced you as a liberal, secular Muslim. That's interesting. I mean, obviously, we're dealing with Islamists who have the requirement that Islam dominate and rule every aspect of life. You're looking at a way then how do you, how do you maintain your Muslim identity if you're in a situation where you're in a, a liberal culture, you're in a free Western society, but you're still a Muslim. Can you talk a little bit about the challenge of maintaining that Muslim identity and, and being, you know, the, the person you feel you are in a way that can provide hope for those who think there's, there's these two extremes? You know, you either, you either go to Al Qaeda, you either accept the Islamist world and all of that, or you're an ex-Muslim. You know, where, where, and there's obviously a spectrum between those two. You both fall somewhere on it. Can you talk a little bit about how that works for you and can work for everyone else? Sure. Um, so for me, I'm a Israeli Muslim, you know, and a lot of uh, understanding of the religion was not for me until after I was in prison. So a lot of like texts that I read, uh, for me were just picked and chose, you know, there was cherry picking that I personally was part of in terms of media strategy that I was uh, partaking in online, but um, I definitely did tend to be more, uh, spiritual in a sense, like after, after coming out of, uh, from, uh, after coming out of bars. So instead of, you know, just being, uh, f- just following that same us and versus them black and white mentality, I guess I, I found the world much more colorful after I began to connect with people of different faiths and different religions, um, you know, as, as something that, um, as, as more than just like a group, as more than just Christians and Jews, but as fellow human beings. And for me, uh, in a sense that that's what uh, that's exactly what Islam does preach, and that's the true, quote unquote, interpretation of the religion. You know that we have to have in the religious circles cultural aspects of it. I mean, I see a lot of my friends 
actually, uh, you know, struggling to reconcile that, you know, with the society that they find themselves in. I mean, they want to be part of this American culture. Um, you know, at the same time, they want to hold on to a Muslim identity that unfortunately, you know, sometimes is, uh, just, you know, like, I guess, just clashed together with a whole bunch of traditions and outdated traditions that should not be part of that. So I think moving forward, a lot of people uh, individually have to decide in terms of, you know, how they can, they want to interpret the religion instead of like letting religion just being this being this, albeit this like one size fits all approach that can, you know, just lead us to everything. So it's a lot of like individualism that's involved in that. For me, that went to a spiritual route for someone else that may go to a different route. So there, there might be um, some work to be done on the theology of developing a Western Muslim identity that is at home. For Muslims who are born and raised in the West, um, I've uh, played a small role in that debate. I have a book out uh, with Sam Harris. It's called Islam and the Future of Tolerance, which was made into a documentary. It's an attempt to try and kickstart that kind of conversation, though I, I openly say that um, though I know theology very well, I'm, I'm not a theologian. I'm not an imam. And, uh, and it's for mainly for the imams themselves to, to be initiating this conversation. But there is hope here in the United States. Um, because of course, um, I mentioned Muhammad earlier, uh, not that he's an imam either, but, uh, he, he's been working with, uh, a network of mosques, Masjid Muhammad, um, a network of, uh, 300 or so mosques. Now, the interesting thing with their experience is what you have here in the U.S. we do not have in Europe. You have generations going back to uh, the history of the U.S. as a country of Muslims who are American Muslims from the African-American community. And it's uh, often a big shame. Uh, I, I grew up revering Malcolm X um, for, in my teenage years, and it's a big shame that actually the far left of today and, and the socialists remember Malcolm X for the period before he changed and not from when he changed and for why he was killed. The man went on pilgrimage, he came back and he said that he considered his past views and his past self as a zombie, and zombie is the word he used, a walking dead man who had racist views. And the change, if he had been given the time to live, we would remember him today, I believe, like we remember uh, Martin Luther King, because he, he turned his life around from the radical views he used to hold. The reason I mention that is that there are, are a bunch of Muslims who left the uh, Farrakhan movement what's known as the Nation of Islam, a racist movement, he, and, the, and they left with him. But they remain and they are alive, even though Malcolm X was killed. And that heritage of African-American Muslims who are as American as apple pie, and they are here, that heritage needs to be tapped into uh, because they have lived through that experience of uh, reconciling their Muslim identity with their American identities. We don't have that in Europe because in Europe, this is something that American ears find strange to hear, so I'll remind our American friends here in Europe. My father came as an immigrant to the United Kingdom. That was the first generation of Muslims, and Britain, where I'm from, has some of the oldest patterns of migration. The rest of Europe is even younger than that. So we are literally, I am second generation. My father was an immigrant. So if you go back to the New York experience with Italian immigrants and Irish immigrants and how long it took, for that to be reconciled with the various factions that were having difficulty with each other and some of the organized crime around that. We're, we're at that stage in Europe at the moment with Muslim presence. It's new. It's only just arrived in Europe. And that's why there is this huge tension. Call it integration. Uh, call it assimilation. I prefer the word integration. But how to do that 
we're fumbling our way through it. But I do believe we we can we can learn a lot from uh, the African American Muslim experience here in the U.S. Um, last thing I'll say: you mentioned ex-Muslims. Um, they're, they're, we as Muslims, uh, one of the most important things, and our friend here earlier mentioned Ayan Hirsi Ali. One of the most important things we as Muslims have a responsibility to do is to open up that space that if Muslims do want to leave their faith, if they do want to explore other faith traditions or none, we have to protect them and their right to do so because within our community still that's a big taboo and they are discriminated against. Perhaps the most vulnerable group among vulnerable groups in society are ex-Muslims. I know my friend here on the, at the back there, Faisal uh, Mutaru, just got his American citizenship. Congratulations, Faisal. Um, he founded um, Ideas Beyond Borders, uh, but he's also, um, among many other things, an Iraqi ex-Muslim who came to this country fleeing, fleeing al-Qaeda terrorist attacks against him personally. Um, one of the things we as Muslims have to do is open up this debate around freedom of religion, which is part of the integration process, so that we can accommodate views such as Ayan Hirsi Ali's, Faisal, and others who have left the religion yet still want to be engaged in this conversation. Okay. Um, got a gentleman here, second row. We'll do three, right? So we'll do there, and then uh, if we could go to the back, and there's someone on the front row as well, so we'll do three. Um, but please. Um, hi, um, my name is Victor. I'm an intern here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, in your interview with Bill Maher, you touched on the differences between American Muslims and British Muslims and how American Muslims seem to be more or hold more liberal views um, than British Muslims or European Muslims in general. Um, could you touch on why you think this is the case and if uh, it is related to the difference, differences between Americans' approach to assimilation and the European approach to more of a multicultural approach? Okay, and then uh, it's at the back row there, please, Rachel. Hi, my name is uh, David Cranberg. I'm here representing Faith Counts. We're a nonprofit dedicated to sharing positive stories about faith. And this question is more for Muhammad, but Majid, you can also answer as well. I know you talked about um, just this humanization as being a big part of your turnaround, but I'm more interested in um, hearing more about your spirituality and how that led to this eventual turnaround. Okay, and then final question. Hi, uh, Mohammed. You, you spoke of your radicalization being almost entirely online. Uh, was there any offline component to it? Was there any local mosque, imam, or, or, or group? Uh, but secondly, if it is online and and the, it's a typical radicalization process online, is the the counter narratives you described and the uh, possible censorship of jihadist material online is that the answer, or what else needs to be done? Uh, so for the spirituality part, um, a lot of times I think we have a tendency just to look at religious texts themselves and just kind of like take, um, again, you know, like uh, most of the extremists would kind of do this, right? Just cherry pick the verses that are kind of like violent and just kind of dogmatically follow, follow that because they tend to answer some kind of extreme that's happening in their lives. Um, but the context that's within that, the stories, the journey, you know, like People afterwards, like Malcolm X, for example, that Majid mentioned, it was actually a big inspiration for me as well, coming out of extremism, because 
his life and the turnaround that he made and the spiritual journey that he made to Mecca and the, you know, the whole people that he saw, whites and blacks together in this one big place, and most being Muslims as well, something that connects them together was something that I could kind of aspire to. And, you know, that was inspiration for me personally, making that journey, uh, outside of, you know, uh, this just black and white world that happened to be part of my, uh, journey before prior to that, which was Islamist ideology, right? So I think that's, uh, understanding that, you know, on my own, um, I did not really reach out to my, any imams while I was behind prison, uh, mostly because, well, it's kind of impractical. But a lot of, um, um, it would be, um, there were attempts for me to uh, be transferred to like a juvenile facility. Unfortunately, those were turned down because the government was not interested in that. But I do think that they could be, in part, that could be maybe part of like a formal de-radicalization program, the spiritual component of it instead of the purely religious component. Um, in terms of the second question, there was a local uh, imam that my parents eventually tried to connect me to. Um, I was not receptive to that so because I still considered people online as my brothers and sisters. Um, I did go uh, and spoke with him a little bit about my views. When I found out that he was not receptive to that, when he could not fit into my views, then I just kind of disowned him at that point. Um, but so he did not, he never really got the context, you know, about what had happened to me because again, I was just shy, uh, FBI kind of knew about it. Uh, my parents did not know because I told the FBI explicitly not to tell my parents what we were talking about. Uh, thankfully they respected that or unthankfully, I guess, but, uh, but that's, that's something that happened as well. Um, the second question, uh, I forgot the second question that he mentioned. Censorship. I think I think that's the one of the biggest mistakes that we can kind of make to censor material like that. I think it's best to give them space to speak about whatever stuff they want to speak out, so we can challenge them. Um, a lot of times when we censor uh, stuff like that, whether it's like religious extremism, far right, far left extremism, these people are going to. Uh, just relegate themselves to the dark web and the circles in the dark web. And that's something that we would not want because we would want to know what these people are communicating about. So that way we can kind of have that civil discussion in society, you know, about exactly how to best counter those narratives that they're spreading. Thank you. On the question about the uh, what American Muslims versus European Muslims um, and American Muslims generally being more liberal and open, it's correct, I stand by uh, that assessment. And I think partly the reason is what America has and what Europe has done. What America has is, uh, for a long time, uh, this uh, country of immigrants. You can be American regardless of wherever you're from. You don't have to go back home. Um, but anyway, uh, so, so that, I mean, America's historically been very good at this stuff. Um, let's see if it remains so. But the, the, uh, the, Europe doesn't have that. Europe, um, is comprised of nation states that used to be defined mainly by ethnicity. And so up until relatively recently, within my lifetime, uh, Germany changed its laws. You can now be a German citizen if you were of Turkish extraction, but only about 15 to 20 years ago, I forget the precise date, forgive me, but this would sound alien to American ears. You could be born three generations in Germany to Turkish families and never acquire German citizenship. You were officially designated as a guest worker. And so those citizenship laws are beginning to change. But of course, the first stage is the law changing, then the culture around that has to change. Uh, they still believe in Greece that uh, uh, you could be Albanian origin, born in Greece, three generations, because there's lots of Albanians in Greece. They don't consider them Greek. Um, th this is an ongoing debate in Europe. Britain got there first, but that's only because um, Britain is actually uh, one, two, three, four, three and a half countries put together. 
Um, Wales, England, Scotland, and Northern Ireland is the half, I say. <laughs> but that's the end. We had troubles there. Um, but the, the, the tag British was to capture all of that, regardless of which country you're from. And so we have this very American-like phrase, British, which allowed for Britain to be slightly further ahead than Europe in, uh, in, in being able to, to work with some of this in terms of citizenship. I think the second reason, apart from the, the nature of nation states and ethnicity in Europe struggling with that conversation till this day today, uh, and some of the rise in, in populist movements in Europe are a direct reaction to that debate, uh, uh, that ongoing debate. The second reason, of course, is the colonial history. Um, European countries' Muslim populations largely hail from where their colonies used to exist. So in the United Kingdom, it's mainly South Asian Muslims, India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. In France, mainly North African and so on and so forth. Uh, the exception is Germany, because, of course, Turks were never colonized. Um, but the, but, but the, uh, the, 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 so we have a, that's okay. Uh, we have a, a competing speaker there. That's a, um, the, the, but the Ottoman Caliphate was, uh, was destroyed in, in Turkey. Is that your, is that your ringer? Isn't that? So anyway, the, 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 uh, that's it. I'll stop there and say that the history of colonialism has led to a more adversarial relationship between Muslims in Europe and the countries they found, find themselves in. And, of course, America didn't have that history of colonialism. Mohammed, can I just quickly come back and, and ask for a clarification on one of the points? I think it's an interesting... Uh, this question about censorship is, is a very topical one, I think, and the, and the regulation of content online. Because you're describing your journey into um, Islamism as an ideology has been almost exclusively online. And yet you're also saying that you think it's important that we don't censor those conversations um, because it, it will drive people further underground. Do you then think that the removal of content, uh, ISIS propaganda videos, I mean, if, for example, those, those are, or the Al-Qaeda equivalents back before ISIS arose, perhaps you wouldn't have got involved in extremism. I mean, would you say that, or would you say that you would have found another path in? Could you try and tease out some of those? Sure, yeah. I, I do think, you know, versus our videos that directly advocate for violence and that, you know, are telling people to go out and actually do partake in violence, those should be removed. And there's no doubt about that. In terms of censorship, I meant the communication, the narratives that these groups are kind of, you know, expounding upon. A lot of times we need to, uh, I think that we are just in this mindset that if we just kind of mute those conversations or if we just relegate them to the dark web, they're just going to stay there. But a lot of times these people are just going to find another way, another outlet to kind of express their views. Um, for me, when I was involved in that, it was in the dark web for sure. It was in password protected extremist forums. Uh, our job was, as you know, someone who's translating those uh, videos, my job was to kind of... Uh, propagate those videos, and uh, these were videos that were inspiring people So it's, uh, to, to terrorism. Um, I do think, you know, we need to have counter-narrative to that, but completely muting that conversation, like completely taking them out of the context, I think maybe doing a disservice to the, you know, the de-radicalization efforts and the fighting efforts against extremism, if that makes sense. I see, okay. Um, do you have any more? Got two. So let's go front row here, and then we'll go second row. That side, please. Uh, hi. Um, you both alluded to something that I've been thinking about, and you, I think uh, I was, you mentioned that your path out of uh, was very individualized, you know, not necessarily repeatable. And I, I read in your book, Mr. Nawaz, I really liked it, and I thought your, your path was also very unique. Given that you can't sort of systematize a way out of radicalism, 
but it seems in a sense you can systematize into it. I mean, to what degree can you, I guess, I'm, I guess what I'm really asking is to what degree can you set up a structure that can be individualized, but still sort of seeks out people to de-radicalize. It seems kind of a weird catch-22 to me. Tell me what I'm missing, I guess. Well, de-radicalization is one of the most inefficient uh, things to focus on because, of course, um, it, it has high rates of recidivism, and that's people returning to their former views. Um, and also, it takes a lot of investment and time for the relatively uh, rare rewards that, uh, that uh, emerge from that investment in time. A more efficient approach is to focus on uh, preventative measures, uh, counter-extremism measures that, uh, that change the, the narrative and prevent radicalization occurring in the first instance. Though, having said that, that doesn't mean we should give up on de-radicalization. It just means we should recognize its place in the hierarchy of the overall work that needs to be done. Um, you're right, people, people leave these ideologies for uh, very unique reasons, but I would also go one step further and say they join them for very unique reasons as well. Um, uh, yes, Islamist groups do try and systematize their recruitment, but their success is very much down to the person they're speaking to and the unique position that person finds themselves in. Um, I would say, though, what is definitely important is if somebody like Muhammad here is in jail and ready to begin those sorts of conversations, then what is absolutely crucial and what I, what I do not believe currently exists in the United States, um, and as I say, we, we will continue working in this way, but I don't believe it exists in a programmatic sense. What is absolutely crucial is to have some form of uh, landing pad or safety net for people like Muhammad who, who do express a willingness to want to try and move forward with their lives and engage. Um, and I think that actually, uh, of course, as we learned from the former USSR, some of the most uh, impactful and um, experienced voices against any given ideology are those who used to subscribe to it and know the theory inside out. Um, and, and not only because they make great uh, counter-narratives to those who are seeking to recruit, uh, but also because some of the work that's required with a question earlier there about integration, some of the work is going to require refuting Islamist and jihadist ideology and uh, providing ways forward um, in terms of theologically for the Muslim American presence in, in the United States. I would, I would definitely, to add on to that, I would definitely second the fact that you have to have like people from the former extremist space, like people like me, for example, and like Majid, you know, who have actually gone through the process be some part of, like, I think has to be some part of the process of re-evaluation program because we, at least I did understand that structure, at least I understood that kind of mindset, that thinking. Uh, for a lot of people who are coming out and who are making that change, you know, and, and transitioning back to society and changing their views, I think a lot of times there's that uncertainty about what to do. And I think going through that process and in my case, thankfully, you know, successfully reintegrating back to the American society, I think definitely uh, provides some important perspectives. And that, because I do believe that each one of us is more than the worst thing that we have ever done. So, hi, hi. thanks for the great panel. Uh, my name is Bo. I'm coming from Senator G Shaheen's office, um, and I'm curious uh, in the context of the uh, pretty divisive rhetoric coming from top political figures across Europe and uh, the U.S. You referenced some of it just recently. Um, it seems to feed directly into the narrative of um, the other against us that you're mentioning, Mohammed. I'm wondering um, how Quilliam thinks about countering that narrative and how other politicians across the U.S. and Europe can effectively and responsibly do so. 
There is a there is a big uh, concern. Ten, eleven years ago, so two thousand eight, however long ago that was, when we when we set Quilliam up, um, uh, if you if you had said, and Robin, you remember this, but if you had said you were worried about far right extremism, people would think you're crazy because it was nowhere on the scene, and uh, we had felt that uh, we had pretty much obliterated any sympathies for that kind of ideology. Of course, we were very sensitive to far-left ideology and their flirtation with Islamists and their long, long-term betrayal of Enlightenment values, uh, which they've ditched, uh, instead favoring Islamist, fellow travelers to Islamist ideology. So we were aware of that dynamic, but um, uh, of late, of course, this other element has reared its head, which is uh, far-right um, populist ideology as well. I mean, it's just crazy if you think about just yesterday, there was a raid on a house in Italy. And this is not a joke. There's no punchline. This is actually true. There was a raid in a house in Italy on a far-right extremist group, and they found an air-to-air missile that was owned by these far-right extremists. God knows. It was huge. They had it in their house, an air-to-air missile. And and (laughs) the AP reported this. So something funny is going on, right? Um, And we call it the symbiotic relationship that these extremist groups have with each other, which you've touched on and how they they justify each other's existence by referring. So I need to be an Islamist because, look, the West hates me. And then they point to somebody that may not even represent the West, but has said something hateful um, and so on and so forth. Each they each do it. The In the United Kingdom, for example, um, Europe's largest far right street protest movement used to be known as the EDL, the English Defense League, until I helped uh, its uh, founder and leader leave that organization. Um, but uh, the EDL was founded in Luton, which was also uh, the base of many, many al-Mahajroon jihadist uh, protests and activities, where, especially in Wooten Bassett, where returning soldiers would come back from tours, and these uh, Muslim jihadists would be spitting at them and holding up placards, calling for their beheadings. Um, and in reaction to that, the EDL was formed so that these groups feed into each other and justify their existence by each other so now when we're discussing radicalization we can identify certain key elements that exist in all of these what i call the triple threat the far left the far right and the islamists there are certain key elements that exist in all of them and so though the process of radicalization is unique um, to each individual there are certain factors that actually need to exist as a prerequisite um, there would need to be a sense of grievance, whether real or perceived. There would need to be an identity crisis. There would need to be a charismatic figure that is looked up to for recruitment purposes. And there would need to be an ideology or a narrative. And those four factors are pretty much present in all three forms of, the, uh, of radicalization that we've just touched on. Well, I think that's all we've got time for. It's, um, it's easy to get despondent when we deal with these kind of issues to do with Islamism extremism and terrorism, but I think we've seen two uh, wonderful advocates on the panel today about what life can look like after those movements, and I think two uh, beacons of hope for the future. So thank you both for being here today, and if the rest of you could thank them as well, please. <laughs>